Hello. Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to say that due to a bit of a technical issue, you may notice a slight echo, but it does improve. We've done what we can to fix this, and I encourage you to stick with it as there are some really great takeaways. On with the show. I'm sort of one of those personalities that's like really hectic and always thinking and really struggles to switch off. So if I understand that's my personality, how do I do something that's probably polar opposite to what I would ever consider? And that would, I guess, be my advice here. There isn't a one size fits all, but also there's kind of some things that maybe you would deem are probably completely the opposite to what you would actually enjoy or want to do can actually have a bigger, a bigger effect on your journey. Welcome to a very special series of Realising Your Potential from Accolade Wines. At Accolade, our purpose is to enrich everyday moments through our amazing and award-winning wine brands. The driving force behind our business is people. And as a proponent of community, we believe some of the most powerful learning comes from people sharing their own stories. In this series, we continue to explore the topic of high performance by speaking to those involved in elite sport and are privileged to also hear from those involved in one of the most exciting communities of Paralympics and Olympics. I'm your host, Ange Murphett, Chief People and Communications Officer at Accolade Wines. So join me as we explore this fascinating world of elite sport. In today's episode, I speak with Krista Cullen, Olympic gold medalist, businesswoman, pilot, and conservationist. Krista Cullen, um, welcome to Accolade Wines, Realising Your Potential podcast series. I'm really delighted to be talking to you today. Um, So welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your career. First, we'd like just to talk about your Olympic career. So can we talk about that? And then we'll talk later in the program about your transition into what you're doing now from a work-life perspective. Yeah, no problem. Um, So yeah, my sporting career sort of spanned over about 16 years. I was brought up in Africa and got sent away to boarding school, which was quite a realisation. And sport is kind of one of those amazing things that creates complete equality. It doesn't matter where you're from, what environment, culture, all of those things. And um, I was struggling to find my feet. And so sport was a really lovely way to sort of, um, yeah, make some friends, I guess, initially. And then from there, I had an option of either becoming an athlete. So I was actually a a sprinter or hockey. And I decided team sports suited my personality better. And then got picked up at the age of 17 to play for the seniors, um, which was quite early in my career. So I was still studying for my A-levels. Uh, And then, um, yeah, broke into the senior squad, into the Great Britain team. But I come from failure, and that's really important message (laughs) to everyone out there because actually the first Olympic Games we tried to qualify for, we didn't qualify. We were favourites to go, and and Great Britain didn't qualify for Athens. But I was in the team to go to that. And then we did Beijing, um, where we didn't make the semifinals. London, where we won bronze. And I use that word very specifically, we won bronze. Um, but winning our last game and then finally culminating in, in, in the Rio Olympics uh, where Great Britain women's hockey won gold. And what was the feeling like um, when you first got capped to play for England? I can only imagine the emotion you must go through when that moment comes. I actually put a lot of my career around being an opportunist. And the, the reason I got my first cap was exactly that. So I happened to be somewhere play in a position that the girl, uh, the right defender got injured. And so the coach phoned me and was like, 
hey, this afternoon we're playing against Scotland. I got some kit for you. Do you want to come down and have a game? And of course, I was literally like, what? I'm 17. You don't get called up to the seniors at 17. So, um, yeah, I think it was kind of a bit of a, a unique opportunity um, to play for seniors. And the reason I think I was able to do it is because physically I was able to compete with women because I was, was not small. I wasn't going to get pushed around. So from that perspective, it was amazing. But these girls were my heroes. You know, I'd watched them all play in the Commonwealth Games uh, and suddenly I was thrown on a pitch alongside them and I was utterly terrified and just looked super busy but didn't really touch the ball and I think that's everybody's first cap really <laughs> and then uh, thankfully managed to find my feet throughout my career to sort of eventually get to the position and, and spot that I wanted to be in. I love it I love the fact that you took the opportunity so there's a, a couple of things that come to mind as I listened to you speak initially there what was it about team sport that, that was the thing for you as opposed to an individual sport? I think it comes down to personality. I really enjoyed experiencing things with people. And ultimately, that's what I end up working in now. I mean, everything I do is around people and relationships. And um, not saying that in an individual sport, you don't get that. I'm just saying it's, you know, it's normally yourself and your relationship with your coach. I want to be in the trenches with people that I know, understand, uh, and can fight alongside. Being with my mates, understanding people, enjoying it together. And that's kind of uh, very much sort of molded my 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 next journey really with sort of colleagues. Now, the other thing I'd like to talk about is that word you used, failure. I think failure is important in terms of growth, but I'd really love to explore that with you and what you learn out of all of the, the failures that you talked about. Um, firstly, the failures are really hard to swallow, especially if you're a proud person, right? So, and we don't set out to fail. I think in sport, compounded failure really cuts us as athletes. And from that, you know, we have to build back better and understand how we can develop, how we can grow, how we can do all those things. We didn't qualify for Athens. You'll notice it was very purposeful to point that out really early on, that actually that is fundamental to, 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 to sort of the person I am now. And, and, and I think the realization, whether you manage a team, whether you're a leader or whether you, you know, are just one of the guys who's a cog in a wheel to get, to get stuff done, Failure is fundamental, in my opinion, to, to, for us to grow and to understand and to build. But what we need to do is allow people rope. Uh, and in that, I, what, I, what I love to try and do in, in sort of the, the, the work environment is how do we create an environment where people feel relatively safe and willing to take educated risk, right? So, so there will be consequence to decisions, and I appreciate that. But sometimes the only way we learn is if we're empowered to be able to make those decisions. And when they hurt us because they are deemed a failure, then, then we learn quicker. How do you come back from something like that as an athlete? I mean, they are personal. They do hurt. Motivation is impacted, I would assume. How do you bring yourself back together? In the build-up to Beijing, we were prescribed to. And by that, I mean, we were told how to be, how to live, what to do. And we became like almost robotic. So we would sort of follow this, this, this theme that was the British way of playing. And every team that we came up against knew exactly what we were going to do. So we weren't this inspiring, you know, decision-making, uh, fulfilled, empowered sort of group that 
that that just went for it and and because of the unpredictability it creates confusion it creates this inability to compete with right and we had developed this way of thinking that was how do we all sit in a room look each other dead in the eye and say right how do we want to be remembered what are our leverage points what do what do we want to live by every day so we came up with statements so things like we are winners we are one team be the difference so all of these statements that would actually resonate with everybody in the group because we created them right so we lived by them and we challenged and nurtured around them so this kind of empowerment of owning your purpose and owning your journey became part of our everyday lives now the athletes are challenging each other and if we start owning that process then then the outcome kind of takes care of itself is kind of what we really believed and how many people from London was on the Rio team in terms of numbers? Half. And then how did yeah. you bring the other half up to when you, uh, ingrain them in that culture, yeah? Because you started in Beijing and went through a whole process, yeah, and you, you lived it the whole way, but then there's new people coming in. So how did you, I suppose, get them up to speed or part of that culture that created that ultimate success? It was it was compounded by the, and easier by the fact that we actually were a full time group. So we were able with with the London Olympics and then securing through that medal further funding for Rio. We were able to be in a full time elite program. It changed around our professionalism, should I say, and the luxury of la national lottery funding, which gave us opportunity to start tackling some of the more peripheral off-field discussion. You know, if you don't have some of these conversations, they become these small cracks. You had a, a strong word with somebody on the field because they did something you didn't agree with, right? And because you don't have time or you don't prioritize it, you don't then take that off-field and say, hi, by the way, let's just have a discussion about that incident that happened, rather than it becoming this mountain out of a molehill later on, which we leave a lot in the corporate world, it's like not spoken about, right? So now it becomes this small problem that starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger because it's not addressed. So when in our culture, it was very much like, albeit we're trying to bring people up to speed. It was like, you know, Krista had a very firm word, should I say, with one of the other players. And then after the, after the match was over, then I would go to that player and say, okay, so these were my reasons. You might not agree with them, but let's have a conversation about it. So let me learn how to better relate to you. You learn why I did that. And now let's actually move forward in a constructive way for the team. You know, and so we started having some of these informal conversations about incidents and things and sort of to encourage that, I don't know, cohesive learning, should I say, um, in other environments and social settings and all of those kind of things, which kind of compounded relationships now. And I think sometimes because we don't prioritize that because we get busy or, you know, all of those things in the work environment or this detachment in our current worlds, we don't have some of these, you know, gutsy, should I say, gutsy conversations. Um, and I think they're really important because they actually make people realize why you did it rather than this assumptive view that we tend to have as humans, which is like, I assume you took me out because you didn't think I was good at my job. And it's like, mm, well, no, you maybe did something that I didn't agree with, but let's have a conversation about it. Um, and because I'm quite a challenging person naturally, if something happens, I will sort of call it out, which is a pretty unique thing, which sport compounds. Hey, you call stuff out and you go, listen, this is going to cause us a problem later on. So let's just chat about it and then let's kill it here and now. And then we move on. And I think that's a great thing about sport. 
But to go back to your question about how do you actually upskill people, it's all time and investment and kind of conversations and bringing the flow into it. And a lot of that was dedication off field. And I think a lot of the reasons we won in Rio was because of our off field thoroughness. in sport and through these conversations I've been having and I even reflect on it with my relationship with my own my own trainer you know I'm so open to feedback when I'm with my trainer like so open and I don't know if that's your experience as well but I still have a tendency when the workplace when someone says I want to give you some feedback to sort of tense up and go I don't really know if I want to hear it and I'm just really curious to explore that with you because it's like why why when I'm working with my trainer or why when I'm with a team doing sport, I really want the feedback and I want to get better. But when I'm in the workplace, I'm a little resistant to it or I'm defensive or, and how can you translate that almost, that culture of being open to it on the sports field and bring that into the workplace? I don't know if that's your experience, but I've been reflecting on it quite a lot. It absolutely is (laughs) my experience. Um, And I think firstly, it's very natural. That's the first thing I want to point out to be a little bit resistive especially when it comes to getting direct feedback because a lot of us don't get it that regularly. And that's also a problem because we almost formalize feedback in the corporate industry where we get, I don't know, performance reviews or quarterly, whatever it is that you do within your organizations. And it's sort of like, oh my God, my review's coming up. You know, and I'm not saying we didn't get that in sport. I, I, we 100% do, but we get constant feedback. And so there's, there's two things, two bits of advice that I'd give around this. The way we do it in sport is constant touch points uh, and dealing with it at the time, which is kind of my point, right? Rather than letting it fester and then revisiting it when, yes, the emotion is out of it. So therefore we're kind of less emotive towards the issue, but actually emotion can actually help us get get a resolution because now we both care at the time, right? Because we care about the outcome. When it's compounded through time, we don't actually care as much about the outcome because we've almost forgotten about the circumstance because life moves on. My other point is that when we do our reviews in the corporate industry, in my opinion, they are just very sort of direct and we have this sort of work on area. We give you some positives, then we give you your work on areas and we kind of take the hits, take the take the feedback and then kind of that's it. There's sort of no, how do we make this work? Where do we, where do we go? Where what, what, what is the expectation? It's sort of like, I, also as managers, I think we get it wrong because I think we go, oh God, I have to go do a performance review for this colleague. Like, let's just get it done. Um, rather than it kind of being something that someone owns, right? So I think the owner should be on the employee where they should go, right, these are my things. And actually what we used to do is, here's my performance development review. And we had a, a sort of a traffic light system with our, um, with our management. And basically, red, we used to be portrayed behind them. Red, you're not going to the Olympics. Amber, if I was selecting a team today, you might be in it. Or green, if I was selecting the team today, you're going to be going, right? So we go into our performance reviews with it very visual and it's ruthless, very visual. And you at least immediately know where you stand. So you're managing expectation, right? So am I doing a good job? Yes, I'm going to be picked or not. The other thing we did was actually bring in another athlete with us. Okay. And this is really important because as athletes or as humans, we just hear the negative all the time. So our coach would tell us, Krista, you know, you just, 
you're just not making the cut in this skill or this issue, or you just keep getting this wrong. And I will hold on to that issue the whole way through the meeting, because that's the only thing I heard, because it's very natural to think I am not good enough at this. But I don't hear the positive stuff because it's not, it's human nature, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm good at that, but I just need to focus on this. And so what we did by bringing in a fellow colleague is start doing some social learning. So after the session, I'm really emotional going into my session because I'm either being picked for an Olympics potentially or not. So the consequence is massive for me. And so the, 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 the other athlete who's a good relationship that I've got or something like that, they can actually hear all of the detail because I don't hear it. It's sort of muffled in my world because it's about me. And then what we do is we go away from the environment and sit and have a coffee. And I'd say, the coach said this about me. And, and it really has annoyed me because I really think I'm not that bad at it. And they'll go, yeah, but he actually also said this stuff that actually tells you that you're actually on the right track and you're doing some good stuff. And then actually in the performance environment, they can actually say, Chris, you're trying a new skill and and or you're trying that thing that you know you and the coach spoke about and it's it's really working like it's really you're developing really well or this is actually coming off really well or whatever it may be and suddenly you start getting this reinforcement from a colleague base about the issue you're working on right so now you're almost indirectly getting reinforcement about the issue sport is an easy way to do it right but how do we bring that into the corporate industry and how we do that i think in my from my world relating to to my new world is about actually you know either have cultural ambassadors within a within an environment that that live eat and breathe it and so any new person joining they sit down with them and they go right guys this is what we're about this is how we do it and you get people to champion stuff and so they 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 love it they really get into the culture and they really start ingraining it into you know new starters or whatever it may be and then in performance reviews, get somebody in there with them that they're close to that maybe doesn't directly compete with them. Somebody that they they know and they've got a developed relationship with and they can have some conversations post the performance review to actually say, well, why don't you work on this and I'll help you through it. And now you've got two people trying to do something. Now you're accountable. Now you've got all of these things that actually indirectly you're trying to create by creating a better team, right? So I, I think that that just gets gets better responses. It was a significant duration of time that you played for England, didn't you? What does it take to compete at that level over a sustained period of time? I got my first cap in 2003 and then I retired at 2016. So yeah, a long old while, sort of 13 years or whatever it was. Your body and the robustness of your body is so important. So yeah, I think it's about looking after yourself and you learn that as you become an older athlete. The stretching and the extras and all of the physio and masseuses and stuff like that just to almost look after number one. Yeah. And even if you're, you know, we, we're talking to you at a very elite level, but even as an individual like myself or anyone listening to this yet, yeah, it's so important to just be as healthy as you can be. Actually, when I walked the dog this morning, I saw this lovely elderly man in the park going for his walk and then he was sitting down and up on a chair, just up and down, up and down. He did about a 100 of them just to get his mobility up and keep his body, which I just thought was look good on you, mate. There's a stigma, actually, I'd say, around strength training. Um, everyone thinks it's got to have these huge weights or all of these these sort of things, but actually just body functional movements, which is exactly what you've just explained, you know, getting strength in areas that you need, whether that's just 
non-weighted squats, you know, or something like that, you know, because you're getting up, sitting down, you know, those movements, you know, as we get older and older, you know, they, they become harder and harder. So the more we're able to build our body's robustness around some of the natural movements that we need for functionality, you know, the, the better your body feels and the better your body feels, the more you're willing to do. Was goal setting really important at that elite level? Did you have sort of certain goals that you wanted to hit or, again, was it just kind of more an organic journey? I wouldn't be able to sort of list them out, but it was sort of one of those things that through, you know, you've got a four-year cycle and in the corporate industry, you know, you've got finance year-end or whatever it may be that are kind of these little targets in order to get maybe the, the turnover ratio that you want after five years, right? So if we use that same analogy that every year we want to grow by X amount in order to achieve Y to get us to the Olympic Games, right? So for, for, for me specifically, it may be around a set skill. So I was the penalty corner taker. So I used to do the drag flicking. So I was the person that was lucky enough to put the ball at goal. In an Olympic Games, you have to score one in three in order to get an Olympic medal, right? So you have the pressure of having to deliver this element of, of the game. So with power, with pressure comes expectation and all of those things. So in order to make sure that I was able to hopefully deliver for the team, I would do 150 drag flicks a day. The way we basically used to do that was around sort of how do I build up confidence? Where does confidence come from? Does it come from me uh, getting feedback from my, my coach or does it come from me doing the numbers and knowing that if I do 150 drag flicks a day, come that opportunity, I'm going to take it. You know, that's where these sort of small targets of making sure that my corner averages were about 80% deliverables so that basically that one in three, I made sure I delivered for my team. You can't go through a long career like that and not have moments where you suffer from injury or illness or how did you get through those setbacks? Um, You know, I wish I could tell you that that we all have these glossy careers and uh, everything goes swimmingly. But the reality is we've all had our own setbacks. So I actually played in Beijing with a bre- with a fractured wrist and was told I'd never play hockey again. And by the end, because I opted to inject it so that I couldn't feel it uh, and just get through the Olympics because that was the difference between coming an Olympian and not. And that's a massive thing for an athlete, okay, at the age of 23 to make a call that they, you know, they could have a career-ending injury. And I was out for nine months thereafter because I had multiple surgeries on my left wrist and I was told, your career's over. You know, there's a there's a reality check there. Actually, I'm, I'm maybe... A slightly different athlete. I really struggled being around the intense environment that I was not able to be a part of. So I actually removed myself from it and, and came back home to Africa for a period just because uh, I was really struggling, uh, whether that was mental health because it wasn't spoken about then or whether it was other things. I just didn't want to be in the intense environment. I just wanted to get away and I actually didn't know whether I'd play hockey again. Yeah, I just, I, I guess you make choices, don't you, around your setbacks of what is and isn't something you can or can't manage. And I think there has to be a, a respect on an individual level as to uh, what is or isn't expected of people. You know, and we all have roles and responsibilities around setbacks. Biggest thing in that is to make sure you remember you're not alone. And then you talked about your sabbatical. So you took some time off from playing elite level hockey and then you decided to come back. Can you talk to me about the reason for the break and then the desire to come back? 
Yeah, so the break was retirement. So there was no expectation to be returning. So I retired at the age of 27. It was early, but I actually came into the sport at 17. So I'd done 10 years of elite sport, which is a lot. And I had other passions and other things I wanted to pursue. So I came back to Africa and I became a pilot and worked in conservation and a lot of other stuff that I'm massively passionate about, having been brought up in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I thought I could, you know, pursue that career because that was kind of what my other passion was. And my life was going in a very different direction at that point. And sport is all or nothing. And I think you only appreciate that if you do it, because it is, it's not a sacrifice, it's a decision. You make a decision to commit to four years of your life where you have to be super selfish. You have to, you know, get stuff done at the detriment of not being able to go to weddings, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff that is normal life that you opt to not do. And I think I got to a stage where I was like, you know what, I want something different. So as you rightfully said, for three years, I hung up my hockey boots. I didn't play hockey at all. Uh, and then one fateful day in April 2015, I got a phone call from the Olympic coach who had coached us in Beijing and London. And he asked me whether I'd consider returning with 10 months to go before Rio. I was crossfit anyway um so I was in really good shape and I kind of was more concerned if I'm honest Ange, about the disruption that I would that I would cause because a team that's preparing for Olympic Games I'd done it three times before I I, I knew <laughs> what the commitment was and how I would be received is so important as to whether I was going to be accepted back into the group or not so the decision took me six months. I didn't, I didn't decide straight away. The girls had to qualify for the Olympics. So obviously I took an avid interest in whether they were going to qualify for Rio. And they did it emphatically by beating the Dutch. And I was like, okay, these guys are serious. And this may be a chance of actually creating history. So I um, went full circle after three years sabbatical, joined the team. And then it was tough, hey? I joined as the 32nd athlete uh, on no funding to uh, get myself in the team and get my bum on that seat to Rio. So thankfully, uh, it worked out. It, could, it wasn't always going to be a bed of roses, but um, ultimately we did actually were able to achieve something pretty amazing. So I'm pretty glad I said yes. You said it took six months, but at some point during that process on the journey, did you go, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision? When I was driving into Bisham Abbey, which is our national training centre, for the first time, I was like, Krista, what the hell are you doing? And there were times at training, you know, where I was just like, this is just not for me. My life's moved on. You know, Self-doubt is a very natural thing. And there were moments where I wasn't sure I was going to get picked. And so I, but I think all of those emotions, you know, there's a big risk putting your neck back on the block. And it's that opportunistic thing again, right? Late on in my career, as well as the start. And sometimes you just got to think, do you know what? Let's give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? I don't get picked and a better team goes to Rio because I was able to push somebody a bit harder. It would be a tough pill to swallow and I would have super struggled, but... Ultimately, that was the only risk I had, which is which is not being good enough to be picked. Um, I want to talk about what you're doing now because you're a businesswoman. So you're working with organisations and individuals. Um, you're a conservationist. You're a pilot. Anything else that I've missed? <laughs> <laughs> no, that'll do. Um, yeah, so I guess the whole idea of leveraging sporting success, it's amazing. You get a, a shiny gong and everyone cares about what you have to say suddenly. So I, I might not agree with it, but, uh, you know, if you've got that ability to have a bit of public profile, why can't you leverage it to do good? So a lot of what I have now changed my my journey onto is around sort of the world of, you know, corporate engagement, building high performance teams, all of 
those kind of things, which was the sort of more immediate, should I say, post post the Olympics. But then compounded off the back of a lot of that is around people, right? People and communities. And so I set up a charity called Tafauti, which means difference in Swahili, mainly around how do we make Africa more sustainable and start building solutions for wildlife and communities to live in more harmonious in like environments around the conservation sort of side. So yes, I studied, I did a master's in conservation straight after the Olympics to give me some sort of credibility, I guess, in the space and then launched this this charity, which has been an amazing roller coaster ride. And, and I'm so privileged to, to have been backed and supported by some some sort of amazing people to sort of help me get that off the ground. And then, yeah, and then I've, I've recently sort of joined a sort of a finance fund that sort of is supporting conservation and communities in Africa um, around the tourism industry for, for COVID relief sort of things and I'm based back in Kenya for now so I'm sort of just trying to make the best of my opportunities here to be able to to, to do good and help and, and and work within the sustainability space because I think you know we've got this decade and everyone's talking about it a lot at the moment and athletes have the third most listened to voice so I'm like how do I start using this opportunity for yes health fitness well-being and making us all the best version of ourselves but also you know a bit more holistically off the back of that how do we actually start changing the trajectory that the earth's on and actually start doing some some better stuff and, and being a little bit more conscious humans uh, in in the way we go about doing stuff and that's kind of been I guess the next the next challenge or the next journey that I've kind of pushing on. But was it hard to make that transition? Did it take a while or were you always pretty clear with what you wanted to do? I think the first time I did it, so after London, I was not prepared at all. Um and I sort of wobbled, should I say, a fair amount. I guess this lack of identity or purpose or all of those things and stuff was a little less defined for me so second time round I definitely say I kind of was a little bit more aware of what I wanted and having already had two or three years in conservation I knew that was potentially my future or the area I wanted to be in uh, so sport kind of just sort of came back in a little sandwich pack either side of my conservation endeavors and then we we, we we won gold so that then changed everything because you know that wasn't the expectation for everybody outwardly but us inwardly it was so it was like, how do I now use this opportunity to leverage this? And how do I bring my worlds of sport and conservation, which is not a natural synergy, um, together to start doing doing some some good? And that was kind of where, I, so second time round, definitely way more prepared. You talk about now working with organisations and creating high-performance teams. What makes a high-performance team? Are there, like, inherent ingredients? <laughs> if I had that answer, that would uh, make me a millionaire. Um, and if you told me, we've got everything sorted, like... <laughs> I'll let you into the little secret. I think the high-performance team environment, in my eyes, is about consistency. I think a lot of us sort of assume it's sort of about taking risk and doing this and doing that but also I think it's minimizing the extremities and kind of keeping a consistent process and it's just so boring because it's the same old thing everyone says but uh you know going back to that drag flicking um confidence-based initiative I think doing 150 drag flicks a day you have to do two twenty thousand repetitions for a skill to become innate 
So something that you want to be natural, a natural movement at the heightened of pressure, you have to have done it for your body for it to be natural 20,000 times. I mean, that's, that's a hell of a lot of numbers in order to get the output. So it's, it's not by mistake that teams are successful. Um, and I think it's kind of that commitment to, to, to performance in order to, to, to get it. And you, you, I mean, you had a leadership role um, within Team GB. How important is it to be authentic in your leadership or now even working in the work that you do outside of sport and when you're talking to organisations, authentic leadership, how important is that? I think it's fundamental. <laughs> I think as leaders we sometimes forget to be vulnerable and I don't know, I maybe go a bit more extreme the other way, which is like, you know what, especially right now, so the team I'm currently working with, um, I'll say, oh, my God, I've really struggled through this time, you know, like losing the connectivity, the personal approach, being able to read people's body languages, like all of those emotional intelligence things that I, I literally leverage my life on emotional intelligence. Like that is one of the skills that I like that I've honed. And now I feel this detachment and it's very natural to feel like that. And so when you are willing to be vulnerable, I think that compounds your authenticity because you make yeah. other people feel like you're human. Historically, and I do think it's sort of the older style of leadership, is sort of this armor plating, nothing can hurt me, everything's absolutely perfect in my life. And and I, I believe in perfect imperfection, you know, that, that there isn't this perfect environment that we can create, but there's definitely like ways we can both challenge and nurture our environments as leaders to be able to, to, to make people feel willing to try whether you're talking about sport whether you're talking about a colleague they don't have to be the best person at the job they just have to have an attitude and a you know commitment that you can work with that brings some energy that's all I ask from a lot of my team I'm like bring some energy and together we can do some really cool stuff and that I think is a very different way of of trying to sort of strip yourself back first to allow people in. And we did it through something called A to Z. So when I'm on my A game, this is how I look, feel and act. When I'm slipping to my Z game, this is how I look, feel and act. And if you allow people in to know your A to Z, then, you know, you can't ask them to tell you if you're not willing to do the same back, right? So, so that's very much how I think, you know, leaders that I definitely respond to very well are very much of that ilk. And creating teams for me that that fill the gap when you're on your Z. Do you know what I mean? So if I'm not on my A, I'm on my Z. I've, I know my team, there's someone there who's on their A game and they've got my back. You know, that kind of surrounding yourself with people who that, that have got your back when you're not quite at your best is so important when you're working with a team. I, mean, I think it's fundamental, you know, like we're not always going to be on it. There'll be times. And then also like knowing what to say, or knowing what to do when somebody's on their Z is also really important um, because you you need to be able to, I mean, sport again compounds this because you've got split seconds to make changes to somebody who's slipping because if they're slipping, you, you're one cog in the wheel that ain't turning and that can be massive on an elite scale. So you need to know what to say, how to deliver it, what to do. And when your lungs feel like they're dropping out your body and you can't even muster an ability to breathe, you need to know your teammate needs you, right? Because it just should be a look or some sort of cue that you're picking up on and you're going, 
okay, I need, this person needs me right now and I need to find the strength to be able to say something and know what to say. So we need to invest time. And time is a luxury that not everybody uh, allows in order to, to get the best out of people. And I think that is, that is a massive process that, that's a joint responsibility in order to, to, to get the output that we all want, whatever field we're in. Yeah, investing in building relationships. And I talk about really pure organic relationships, yeah, where I generally want to know and care and understand you, what drives you, you know, what upsets you. And I think that really investing in relationships is so critical. What makes a good coach? I think that appreciation of differences and willingness to to listen, not always kind of be dictatorial. I think the luxury that we had within our environment, Andrew, was about the fact that we had the same coach and the most, in the most part, the same coaching staff through Beijing, London and Rio. And their style, should I say, of, of coaching changed dramatically where it was very much prescribed in the initial stages of, of sort of the Beijing campaign and then how much it changed throughout that that sort of the, the next two Olympics that followed quite considerably. And I think that was kind of releasing some of the um, micromanagement, should I say, and allowing this sort of empowerment piece of letting people make decisions, make mistakes, you know, all of those sort of things in a, in a safe environment to then let them feel able at the, at the pinnacle of sport or when they're in the most pressured environments to, to, to sort of uh, deliver for, for the organization or, or for the team in question. So, yeah, I think a, a good coach trusts their people or trusts their players to, to go out there and deliver around a framework. And I think that was the journey we went on. I spoke to, um, I actually spoke to the assistant coach for the lightweight South African four who won in London. And he said that his, his belief, his, belief around coaching is that your coach almost becomes surplus to requirements that you trust your team so much and they've pre- you've prepared them to the point where actually you become irrelevant to the performance in a way um, which I find really really interesting um, actually in terms of thinking about coaching but that's ultimately um, what we should try and create right we should almost put ourselves out of a job by empowering those around us with our skills and expertise um, and then maybe after that point, your job is done. Um, yeah. and, and that's exactly what he's saying. And I, I couldn't endorse yeah. that enough. I really like it, actually. And, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I think about, you know, when you think about sporting teams, often the coach isn't on the field or um, in the rowing boat. So when you kind of push your crew off onto the rowing course or you put your field team on the hockey course, yeah, you're, you're literally trusting that you've done everything you need to do um, and the players will do what they need to do to perform, yeah. So I think it's a, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to think about and how do you translate that back into the workplace. I really loved on your website when I was researching for this podcast, your quote, and I'm just going to read it out. Better never stops the conviction to stay true, the courage to be different, helping organisations and individuals play big. I'm really interested to understand how you apply that to your own life and how you help others or individuals or organisations to do that. Well, I think just to start with the first one, uh, that's kind of my my life sort of all all sort of wheeled in into one, which is this this better never stops mentality. Because I think sometimes, even if we have been lucky enough to be successful in whatever field, 
we're still not masters of it. Do you know what I mean? So I think this willingness and it links also to leadership and to what we've just discussed around coaching is, is this, this relinquishing of responsibility in an environment to allow people to fulfill themselves. Uh, success and fulfillment, I, I segregate very differently. Uh, fulfillment for me is about a, a more sort of all-encompassing, uh, personable, sort of more human side of, of what makes you really get up in the morning and feel inspired to do stuff, whereas success is kind of like a finite outcome focus. Um, so this sort of willingness to, to, to delve beneath the surfaces of a, a lot of, a lot of stuff that we either keep closed up or, or whatever, or willingness to listen more, talk less, uh, and start understanding people around us, et cetera, et cetera, in order to give them opportunity, uh, to thrive. And that's where I think very much within my, my sort of focused uh, engagement with the corporate industry, it, it links to that willingness to play big and not being afraid of being a bit unique. So I built a charity that's called Difference, right, to Fauci. I, I was in a, an elite training environment my whole career, and I didn't fit in a routine training environment, but I made it work. Uh, I was different. I worked a lot uh, alongside sort of making sure my career was going alongside my sporting ambition, which was a nightmare juggling act. Uh, I, I constantly was being challenged from the coaching staff saying that I'm doing too much. Uh, and I said, well, if it's at the detriment to my hockey, then let's have a conversation. Um, but I wanted to be this well-rounded or as well-rounded as I could possibly be in it, still maintaining an elite training environment. Um, so it's sort of, I guess, all those resonated statements on my, on my website more around um, how do I get the people that I engage with within corporates um, to be willing to challenge themselves out of their comfort zones, uh, be different and stand up for what they believe in, uh, or albeit it needs to be aligned with a purpose for an outcome that the, that the business may need or, or whatever their, their role may possess. And, you know, take those risks sometimes like let's not we're never going to achieve all the things we want to achieve if we're not opportunistic and we don't try new things and you know nine times out of ten we may fail but we'll only know if we try uh, and that's kind of the endorsement side of, of what I'm trying to create is this this sort of value attrition uh, grittiness that I think is going out of society now and, and how do I use that leveraging from sport into into the corporate world and uh, just a question on the conviction to stay true, which I, I really love. How? What advice would you give to stay true um, when you're going to have a wobble? Does that make sense? Because sometimes when you're on a path and you're committed, but then things don't quite go the way they're planned or you have a crisis of confidence, staying true to that can be really difficult. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And a lot of the conversations I have with sort of CEOs who are trying to you know, especially incoming CEOs who are trying to like make a massive impact in the organization and change the trajectory that they're on. And suddenly, oh, everything's not kind of, you know, everyone's not as committed as they hoped they'd be or, or things aren't quite going right. I think sometimes we underestimate the gut feeling um, that we have around decisions that we make. Um, 
And I and I absolutely agree that times we we do we get it wrong and and actually you're human, <laughs> so don't forget that the human factor is that sometimes we make choices, and getting to a cul-de-sac and turning around and going in another direction is not always failure. It's just a change of direction, um, and actually that willingness to say, do you know what, guys? Even if I'm at the helm of something. A slight misjudgment on my part. Um, I, I didn't quite get this this right, and I think now I want to I want to mould us to head in this direction, um, and taking it front on. So that conviction to stay true, which is I, I still believe in where I want to go, but sometimes the journey may be a slight more meander than I anticipated. And it's the way we deliver that message to our fellow colleagues or fellow leaders or whatever it is, is so important about the language we use, about, you know, the sensitivity of its delivery, that willingness to be vulnerable. And a lot of the stuff we've already spoken about in detail, yeah. it's okay to change your mind. You know, like I think sometimes we're like, I'm going to keep battering this door down and and, and I'm too proud and I'd rather fail and show my vulnerabilities and have tried to maneuver than just keep just because of my pride or my arrogance to some extent is just keep doing the same thing again and again because it just doesn't get us the outcome we want. It comes back to what we were saying about being authentic leader, showing vulnerability, having created that psychological safety so that you can then have those conversations, which is so, so important. Great advice. Is there a daily practice or routine um, that you've implemented yourself or you've helped others with to make them a better athlete, leader, human being? I mean, we talk about creating the best versions of ourselves. I, I think there's not one size fits all. So I do think it depends a little bit on personality as to how we make people better versions. And the routine element is this willingness to try because I mean, when my coach came to me and said, have you ever thought about meditation? And I was literally like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not a personality that normally will sit and sort of do this commitment to, you know, 40 minutes of listening to music and kind of trying to diffuse. But actually, when I said, you know what, rather than being a skeptic about it, let me try. I'm sort of one of those personalities that's like really hectic and always thinking and really struggles to switch off. So if I understand that's my personality, how do I do something that's probably polar opposite to what I would ever consider? And that would, I guess, be my advice here. There isn't a one size fits all, but also there's kind of some things that maybe you would deem are probably completely the opposite to what you would actually enjoy or want to do can actually have a bigger, a bigger effect on your journey. So I do sometimes do this complete switch off vibe and kind of uh, try and diffuse, albeit maybe not as as good as I should. But um, that's just that would just be my advice around that bit, which is not necessarily a routine element of what works for all, but just that willingness to, to to sort of reach out and do some stuff that wouldn't naturally be you. And then once you've done it, I believe in this immersive thing. So you've done it. So now it's like right now that I've experienced it. Now I can have an opinion, right? Rather than having an opinion prior to actually committing. Uh, and that's, that's where I think our, 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 our biggest gains can be.
I'm so pleased that you talked about meditation because that has come up so frequently with our guests, how people have found meditation as one tool to help even out the bumps and just, you know, to have that kind of shut down period where you can kind of just zone out and, and kind of regain your energy. Yeah, absolutely. And then ironically, based off the, off the meditation, I then learned a skill of, of how to relieve pressure around penalty corner taking. So I started to like hum or sing uh, when I was taking penalty corners because I learned that that actually uh, relaxed me a little bit in the heightenedness of pressure. Um, so much so that the stick stopper in front of me used to almost look at me and be like, uh, why are you not humming, Krista? Because then she knows I'm not in my preparation of like do, committing to doing what I needed to do, right? So uh, obviously off the back of a meditation, I learned to do something in my routine of prepare of how prepared I was in order to give me my deliverables. So there's always ways we can learn. And that's that be better piece, which is better never stops. You, you, there's always things you can learn from one environment and switch or change or, you know, combine with something else that can help you in other environments. My final question for you is, are you a podcast fan and any that you would like to recommend to someone listening to this? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a, an avid podcaster, but I have done a podcast series myself. Um, so maybe it's probably a good place to start. So I did a Tafauti podcast series, which was all around conservationists and, uh, and of course, the, the, the various different areas of conservation with the specialists, which I, I, I actually learned a hell of a lot. I, I listened to ones around the sustainability jungle. I don't know if you've come across those, but the sustainability jungle podcasts, they're quite cool because they're quite sort of prescribed very much specialists within the sustainability space because that's obviously my area of um, of passion. And of course, the sort of TED business ones, I think they're, they're always a great, they're always a great uh, add to the podcast series options. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of the podcast series. Well, that brings an end to my conversation with Krista. There were some really great messages in that conversation and the things I'm going to think about are, as humans, failure is really hard to swallow. We don't set out to fail, but it is fundamental to help us grow to get better. We're not always going to be on our A game. So as a leader, knowing what to say and what to do when one of your team is not at their best is critical to your team's success. And it's okay to play big, to be unique, to be different, and to take calculated risks sometimes. Thanks for listening. We love sharing these real stories, so please like, subscribe, and share this episode with the people in your community. Feel free to reach out if you want to find out more or have a story to share of your own. Links to get in touch and other great resources are in the show notes. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. Your Potential.